the obstacle to making progress is a super emotional one. And that's really hard for people. It, it can happen in an instant, but it's really hard. You have to acknowledge that, wow, our processes really are reliably set up for white men and they're not reliably set up for black women or whatever combination you're going to do. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Frances Fry about her latest book, Unleashed. Frances has fantastic TED Talk. She's also been hired by some amazing companies to help them fix their culture. She went into Riot Games. She went into WeWork, but most famously, she went into Uber. We have a fantastic conversation today, and I had loads of fun. We laughed all the way through, but there's some fantastic takeaways from her book about how to create a business that plays to the strengths of minorities so whether that be women or people of color or whatever you know francis's view is if you're only hiring white men you're only fishing in a pond with 25 percent of the talent and the successful businesses over the next five years are those that go and set their stall out and deliberately bring on board the talent from the other 75 percent of the population that their competitors are not currently fishing in so fantastic maybe challenging conversation but I really enjoyed it, and I'm sure you will too. Hi, I'm Francis Fry. I'm a professor at the Harvard Business School, and I have just written a book called Unleashed, The Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. Francis, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. So another business book, another leadership book? <laughs> yeah, you know, the the reason we were moved to write this book is that the we were observing, we re read a lot, Anne and I, and what we were observing that was working in practice wasn't lining up with most of what we were reading. And it was because it had an underlying premise that was different. And so then everything built on top of the premise. The underlying premise was that most of the leadership books were written about leaders. And we found that the most effective leaders were so much less interested and concerned about themselves and were really disproportionately paying attention to others. And so that's why we, that's why we wrote it. Okay. And so that made you laugh. Why well, that it, well, laugh? cause I, cause the, the, to me, the whole sort of premise of leadership is about having followers. And so it is so much not about you and all about them that you felt that the, that I don't know, that the rest of the world thinks something different. I don't think leadership is about having followers. I think leadership is about empowering others to achieve their best, the best that they can. So I think you're, you and I are just right now articulating why the book was needed. 
Aha, okay. But when I read your sort of title about empowering, empowering does feel as though it, you're doing something to people. Like, you know, if you have to empower them, it feels as though you in the past may have taken the power from them and then you're giving it back. No, I don't think so. So it's it's more like the Toni Morrison quote, which is, uh, which is how we start the book, which is some version of when you've like achieved the power that you so richly deserve, your first job is to go and empower someone else. It's not saying I have taken away power and so now I'm going to give it to you. But I, and I think that why this matters is that some people are getting informally empowered all the time. And it's usually if someone, if I'm interacting with someone who is just like me, I'm doing all kinds of things to set them up for success and I don't know it and they don't know it. And then when someone's quite different than me, that casual empowerment isn't happening. So I have to be more explicit about it. Yes, absolutely. So I use often with clients, I use Gallup strengths and it's exactly that, you know, where you and I are the same, I will delegate a task and I'm just assuming you're going to do it the way I'm going to do it and you do and it works. And when it's, when you go and do something different, then like all of the assumptions I had about how you were going to do it, I didn't expect I was going to have to tell you how to do it. And then all of that sort of breaks down and then that relationship falls apart because there's a whole load of unsaid assumptions on both sides. And I think that that's probably at the root of many of the diversity conversations that are going on right now is that when we typically assume similarity and when we're confronted with difference, it goes haywire unless we're explicit about it. Yes. Okay. So tell me more about, tell me more about that. Sure. So let's say that I'm an organization that uh, has a singular profile in its leadership. So White men. Oh, <laughs> that, that'll be that'll be most businesses. Okay, and they have recruiting practices and development practices and promotion practices that are reliably working to have white men, and so they're doing great for that. And I wouldn't change it at all when you want the next best white man, but they might not be getting the best black woman, for example, because a black woman is different on race and different on gender, and. So they will have to be explicit about attracting and retaining people that are different than them, or else they'll get the best of a narrow demographic. If you want the best of everyone, you're going to have to learn how to do it for people that are similar to you, casual and straightforward, and also for people that are different than you. So even where you recruit. Yes. And how and who interviews them and the process and, and, and. But there's an assumption built into that, which is that the diversity would give you a better outcome? Well, here's the way I look at it. If you and I are going to compete, which I feel like we will one day, (laughs) if you and I are going to compete and you only get to choose from a quarter of the available people and I get to pick from all of the available people, who's going to win? That's So that's the underlying assumption. I mean, it's not an assumption. It's tautological. If I get access to the best of everyone and you only get access to the best of some, yes, I'm going to win. <laughs> yes. I will. The other thing is that I don't, I don't even feel the need to, if you're thinking about a competitive situation, I don't even feel the need to tell everybody that this must be true. Because otherwise, I give away the advantage. I mean, at one, at one level, if you're fighting for improvements in diversity, then, you know, everybody should be more diverse. But for the companies that do get diversity right, then they don't need to 
I completely agree. So when I go and talk to companies, I say, look, I think you have about five years left on being able to get an advantage on this. I'm making it my life's mission to make this competitive differentiation go away. Yes. And it's, you reckon five years you're out of a job? If I'm successful, yes. And so how, so how would you measure success? What, would you, what criteria would you put in place? That gender and race are no longer interesting descriptors of who thrives. Uh-huh. And I guess it takes a while for that to roll through to a boardroom, or would you say like at a- We you, do it no? in a board. No, take a snapshot of the board today. Take a snapshot of the board in a year. Like, it doesn't take a while. I mean, if a while is a year, but it doesn't take longer than a year. People are rolling off boards all the time. And you can make- <laughs> We just they're just getting replaced by the twenty five percent of the world as opposed to and and so if you try to solve for one of those things, you know you try to solve for uh, gender, how much harder is it to solve for gender and race and gender and race and say sexuality or you know it's a great question. It's a great question. So I think that solving for the first one is really hard because you'll be in an organization that you and I like tautologically get it, but there'll be people in the organization that it's still going to be hard. Like, oh, aren't you lowering the bar? I'm like, no, I'm not lowering the bar. I'm just increasing the size of the population. So doing it for the first one is hard. Doing it for the second one is easier. So from a company's perspective, it's easier. But from a person's perspective, if I am a woman and I am black, it's not just two times it's hard. It's more. So the intersection for the individual is a lot harder. The doing it from a company's perspective, it gets easier with each one. And how do you, uh, so the, the thing about lowering the bar is what comes up all the time. And I think there was some legislation in Australia about female representation on boards because the premise was that diversity was important. I think it was in, uh, I think it was in the UK. Oh, was it? Oh, well, I was, I was thinking about something I'd read in the US where they'd looked at traded companies that had done this and there was some uh, legislative change and then there was some backlash saying, look, we've done it and it didn't, ma- it didn't make a difference or it, it got worse. So uh, listen, I think that anytime you're going to have, anytime you're going to do legislation, it's a last resort. So if we know that diversity improves things and still organizations are stubbornly not diverse. So we know they're underperforming and they can't seem to get out of their way in any way, shape or form. I think that's when legislation comes in. It's not my preferred way to do things. Although I can tell you that if you're going to have one woman on a board, it's okay. Two women on a board, it's okay. Three women on a board, you'll thump everyone else. And here's why. The first woman, she has to represent women And that's really hard for any woman to do. Like which woman in the world can represent women? But every woman that's a single woman on a board is being asked to represent women. When there's two women, everybody's intensely looking at, are they together or apart? (laughs) It's only when you get to three that each person gets to be their own person. And that's when it really happens. So that the legislation, which I think is a last resort, is also legislating at three. I think they did observe the correct number. Our book is written so that you would get this done way before any legislation happened. And you'd get it done because it's going to make you perform much, much better. I also think by the time you get to legislation, I worry that people will cynically bring on people. And so they might they might just find the 
first woman they can find. That might be who they put on the board as opposed to finding the best woman out there. Um, so I worry about if you don't totally digest it, you know, I can imagine it going well and I can imagine it going badly. But I'd like us to solve these issues in the absence of legislation. But I totally understand when legislators are like, "We, how many decades do you want? Like literally. Well, I remember um, in the 80s going for a job and realizing that at the time in the UK, there were quotas for uh, ethnic minorities. And so if your business was in a, in an area that had a high ethnic minority population, the popula- that your employee, your employees had to mirror the population. And so this organization seemed to be populated completely by white men. And then you realize that all the cleaning staff were black women. And so they'd, they'd solve their quota problem by ticking the box. Well, I'd say that you, I can show you countless organizations that have no such quota and still end up with those demographics. Yes. Okay. So it's interesting on the podcast of uh, last year, I was chatting to Giles Palmer because the UK has now got this gender pay gap and companies have to say what their gender pay yeah. gap. Yeah. And, and he walked into a complete storm inside his organization when they published the, the gender pay gap information. And so the his podcast with me is all about what he's done subsequently to try and manage that in his business to show that they are actively looking to narrow that gap. I mean, the gap is... Is he is he managing it for optics or is he really addressing it? No, well, what, what he realized is that, uh, look, he said, he said, Dom, most of our highly paid people are software developers and the less well-paid female staff are account managers. And so it's not, it looks like there's a gender pay gap, but it's a job gap and the jobs get paid differently. So Nonsense. I hope you said nonsense. <laughs> Oh, really? And there aren't any women that are excellent software developers? Please. It's nonsense. <laughs> so I'm sure that's what you said to him. Well, I was I had a very interesting conversation with him. I mean, I in the time that I've hired, uh, certainly not software developers, I haven't hired, hired very many of those, but Windows or Linux support engineers, hardly ever, 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 ever. I mean, there were times when I would interview every single female candidate that we could find because we were trying. It's You're not looking in the right places. You've exactly got onto it. I believe you have interviewed everyone and the women you found. I believe you could have found white men that were better than the women you could find. And they might even have been better than the black people you could find. But it's because you don't know where to look. Like you're doing, you're doing white male recruiting for women and for people of color. And then you're wondering. So I'll give you an example. And I get this all the time. But so I get told, you know, oh, I can't find any women in technology. Like super interesting. Grace Hopper Conference every year, California has 15,000 amazing women in tech come together. Amazing. And they're all there curious about another job. So I ask these people, well, golly, so when you recruited at the Grace Hopper, they're like, what's Grace Hopper? So the same people who can't find also don't haven't even done the cursory, how do you look? They're just wondering why they're not coming to them through the same channels that they're getting everyone else. And I'm not saying this in, I mean, I'm being playful with you because we had a nice report, but, <laughs> but it's, if you're reliably producing one thing, don't assume it doesn't have, like, it's your process that's the problem, not the people. When I was talking to somebody who had said, uh, and in fact, now one of the things that Giles does is he makes sure that his shortlist is uh, is balanced, and his rec- like 
enough and and good quality but he said it takes the recruitment team twice as long so you have to yeah you have to work harder so he said look we're going to work harder but here's the thing about that and sure if you're like anytime you do something that's not traditional it's going to take harder work until it doesn't like as soon as you get good at it it won't take hard any work but here's what i'd say about balance like he has balanced slates i don't know if balanced slates work for him if he is now attracting women that are just as good as the men that are better than the men, balance slates are working. If they're not, then it could just be, I've watched some people like the NFL, which is where balance slates originally came from, and the Rooney rule. It was to the observation that there were very few black head coaches in the NFL. So they put in a balance slate named after the man who did it and cared a lot. 15 years later, there were the same number of black, of black coaches in the NFL. So I'm not saying that balance slates, balance slates don't work. They can work, but they cannot work. I don't like to give out participation trophies. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. I mean, look at uh, at Rackspace. I tried really, really hard to find uh, technical people, female technical people. Got very few. But what I could do is I could hire, I could get a gender balance by f- hiring female staff into roles in sales, which would t- which in the rest of the organization would also be 100% male. And so, you know, we got 60, we got a 60 40 agenda balance, which was, and my colleagues in the US just couldn't understand why we, why we didn't just hire men. Like, cause that's what because they the did. Women were why better, did, probably. Well, <laughs> the women were better. We had definitely had better results, but it's also, it's about whether you think the outcome will be better if you end up with diversity. And I'm absolutely passionate that if you, but I, I don't even like. I don't even understand it tautologically. Again, if you only get to get the best of a small group, and I get to get the best of a large group, I'm going to win. I mean, I do understand. Like some people think, oh, you're going to lower the bar for diversity. Here's what I provocatively say, and I feel like I can be provocative with you. Anyone who thinks I worry about that, I would ask them to look at your current practices and consider whether or not you've already been lowering the bar for whomever you have in your organization. Oh, look, I would say I've never worked with a client who has 100% A players in their organization. So they're already doing that already. And so I'm actually a keeping the bar high is better for women and people of color. They have not been the ones who have historically benefited from lowering the bar. Indeed. So what else, what else should people do if it's not a balanced uh, shortlist? What, what should be, what should be, and you said, you said there are some conferences people should look for. Yeah. So I think that the first one there's, so the first one is, am I attracting outsized demand? And if I wait here and just say I'm open versus I go to where you are. So another example is like people that are looking for, people will lament that the only lawyers that they can find in New York City are white lawyers. And New York City happens to have a group called the 1844 Group, which is an association of amazing black lawyers in New York City. Most people who tell me I can't find any black lawyers also are unaware of the 1844 group. Now, here's how you become aware of the 1844 group. You ask one black lawyer in New York City, where are other great black lawyers? And they will reliably say the 1844 group. You ask one amazing woman tech engineer, where can I find amazing women tech engineers? Every one of them will say the Grace Hopper Conference, like I'm not giving out secret memos or, or whatever the UK version of whatever any of those the UK is, version yeah. is. So, like, if you want to know where do I find great blank, ask a great blank person. 
they will not be trying to keep it from you. Yes. Well, and I also think that COVID-19 might have some unintended positive consequences. Um, you know, I was talking to, I was talking to a guy in, in Dublin uh, last year at a happy workplace conference. And he said, he said, it's fantastic, Dom. He said, all of the, you know, global titans of technology are in Dublin and they hire amazing female, you know, graduates. And then they run them through their graduate program. And then these ladies decide to start a family and they go on maternity leave. And he said, because they're the US businesses, they have absolutely crappy maternity policies. They have statutory minimum and they don't want to come back nine to five to the office commuting into Dublin, he said. So I I offer them part-time work or work from home or a mix of home and office and flexible hours. And he said, I have I have a queue of amazing people as long as your arm. I just don't have enough jobs for them all. And it's totally it's totally transformed his business and his quality's gone up because because he's making himself avail he's, he's he's meeting them where they want to be, not where he was historically. And so what he did is figured out how to be super attractive to moms of young kids who want to spend time with their kids. And I think it's that, but you can notice that that strategy is probably not going to help for others. So for each niche, we have to, to your point, just meet them where they are. Here's what I often think, like in any group, if I want to win on that group, I go to the existing people in that group and I say, could you just share with me the indignities list? And they're like, what's the indignities list? And I was like, all of the like indignities that you, the nicks that you suffer or that you observe people suffer in your job, whether it's intro week or entry year, like what are the indignities? And then I take the list and I convert it to a dignities list, just one-to-one. And that's what he, that's what your friend did in Dublin. Yeah. And so you could do that. So there's, so there's location. Where are these people, where are these people hiding in plain sight? Go find one and ask. Yeah, so that's the attraction. But then you have to learn how to get them to say yes. So that's a totally different one. So once and I think you're, I think you're right. The first one is really hard. But once you've got, once somebody's there, like two, three, you've got a community, and then there's a, then there's a queue. And now, and and your community will help. Well, because because they will they will help persuade that any candidate who comes through the door that your dignities list was not marketing and was real. Exactly right. Which is why I asked you the question of, for your other friend, was it like for optics or what is, was, were they really trying to change it? So then, but then it's a separate issue of how do you get people to say yes? So I'll give you an example. HBS, we would hire sometimes a, like a senior faculty member from Stanford. We would recruit to HBS and they would try to recruit us there. <clears throat> so we call those senior hires. And in the history, I remember I, we got a chance to look at the data, and in the history of the school, there had been somewhere on the order of a hundred senior hires. Uh, so it, we had recruited senior faculty; five had been women. Now I then looked a little further. Uh, it's not that we weren't asking, so it's not that we couldn't find the women. Women were saying no, and men were saying yes. So then, double click further. Why are the women saying no? We had a super well-intentioned practice that was absolutely keeping moms out. And it was, HBS is different than other business schools. True. So other business schools are more alike to one another than they are to HBS. It's just a different place, neither good nor bad. It's different. So for you to really like understand us, we want you to visit for a year. If you visit for a year, you'll know you're a good fit. We'll know you're a good fit. 
what would often happen is a man would visit for a year. If he had his family, his family wouldn't move, or maybe his family would move, but he could visit for a year. A senior woman, like, so imagine you're a rock star professor at Stanford and you got, you have, you know, I have two young kids. You have two young kids like you do. We would like you to come visit for a year before we <laughs> give you the job. Before we give you a job. Yeah, come and give up this massive job you've got somewhere else. Come here. Come here on the off chance that you like it more than the one you've got now. Yeah, you might say no. Now, we were doing it because we wanted bad fits, is the language we would use, are super costly. So we had to come up with alternate ways to rigorously test fit. But the year-long visit, which we were so proud of, was causal for the 95 and 5. And so you changed it? We did change it for a couple of people. And then we, so, you know, in the book, we say that leadership is about making people better as a result of your presence and have it last into your absence. It hasn't lasted into my absence. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm super optimistic it will. It's just, we're just attracting senior men. Like I'm not looking at the data, but it feels like a ticker. (laughs) You just watch the stock ticker go by and it's still super unusual when it's a woman and it's still super usual that it's a man. So what I would say is that it really requires, if you just let things naturally happen and instead attend to something else. So I haven't looked at the data, but I bet it's in the 95-5 ratio. So what else, what else should we go looking for in, in the book? Because I was saying to you, I was saying to you before we started, I was, I was reading your book as the Black Lives Matter thing took global stage. You obviously wrote that before this happened, but it felt as though it was absolutely a book for now. So, you know, whether, whether the minority is, uh, is around color or it's about gender or it's about sexual orientation, the, the book just says, this is what you should be doing. Here's your playbook to solve this problem. And that is the thing that we, of course, didn't have this in mind, but it seems super poignantly relevant to it. So there's a couple of things. One is that we just talked about attracting people and you have to find them and then get them to yes. And then it's developing people. And are there disparities in how you develop? And I think it's what we were earlier talking about. We casually help people who are like us. And we don't always casually help people that are not like us. So if we're not super explicit, we not we might not develop them at the same rate, which then means when the promotions come up, well, you're better off than I am, but you got all this extra help because you, people were just like you and they you didn't even they didn't form it as help, you didn't receive it as help, and I got none because there's nobody like me and everyone just kind of left me alone. And what helps is just look at it, just have a dashboard. Like I'm so believe in data. If there are demographic tendencies associated with who's thriving and just any measure of achievement and success, go double click hard there and see what's holding them back. So that's, I think, one part of it. The other part of the playbook is that if you really want to address this, I actually think you can do it very quickly, but you have to really want to. And here's the criteria for really want to. Are you willing to acknowledge that you haven't done it in the past? The obstacle to making progress is a super emotional one. And that's really hard for people. It, it can happen in an instant, but it's really hard. You have to acknowledge that, wow, our processes really are reliably set up for white men and they're not reliably set up for black women or whatever combination you're going to do. Now, if you can look at the data 
and say, oh my gosh, empirically, it's totally true. Let's do something different. You're 80% of the way there. But if you can't acknowledge that, what will happen is every time we give you guidance on what to do next, you're still going to want to go back to go and say, but wait, I'm not really sure we have a problem. So you kind of, and you know, by problem, I don't condemn anyone for the past, but if like HBS, when we were hiring 95 men and five women, if you ask me like, are the men that much better than the women in any field, you know, empirically, no. So even in fields that are predominantly women, we were hiring predominantly men. Um, And no one would say, oh, it's because all of the superstars are men. No one would conclude that. We just weren't. But putting on the glasses and looking at it, and I think that's the interesting thing about Black Lives Matter. The United States, at least, everyone seems to be putting on the glasses at the same time. And that hasn't happened, as I understand it, in 400 years in the United States. That we didn't all like, and I've probably because we were coming out of COVID, but we all got to see something at the same time. And we're like, oh my gosh. I think Black people are like, finally, you're also seeing it. But there are, I mean, I'm always considered myself progressive. I can't express to you how much I've learned in the last 60 days that of things I was moving, I'm so grateful for the new glasses and now I'm acting feverishly on it. But I think we have to, step one is seeing and really believing what you see. Do you, is there anything you can share that in the last 60 days that you're working on that you've, as a personal insight? Oh, sure. So I was watching, like, I mean, if you gave me a multiple choice quiz, I would have gotten close to a hundred on, have there been racial injustice in the United States? But like, for example, I didn't know about the talk. I didn't know what the talk meant. And, I, and you know, I my boys are 12 and nine. If you're a black family in the United States and your boys are 12 and nine, you would have already had the talk with them. I don't know what that is. Yeah, I know. But so you're about to <laughs> you're about to overcome what I did. But this is where I was. I didn't know what it was. I didn't hear it. And the, it, the talk is, if you see the police, make sure that your hands are all, don't put your hands in your pocket. Don't run. Don't ride your bicycle at night with a hoodie on. Like it's all of these things that you have to do for self-preservation because of the color of your skin in the United States. And we have to teach it to 12-year-old. In fact, 12 might be too late for some. My two boys, my wife had, they're like white, white, white. I don't have to have the talk. I didn't even know the talk was happening. But they go to school with kids who have to have the talk. So I think it's it's of those things that I just have like such a deeper appreciation for that this isn't like a oh, once a month or once a year. This is an intraday experience. Like race is an intraday experience. And I didn't have a full appreciation of that. Yeah, and there was a, sadly, I can't remember his name or the company, but there was a guy who runs an advertising agency in the UK. And of course he went back to the office for the first time and nobody's in suits, these all. And the security guard told him to use the the loading bay. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, security company obviously sacked the guy, but you just think, really? That's just like incredible. You know, it's just like, that's not an experience that I would ever think of having my, nobody would, No, I can't imagine anyone saying, mate, use the, use the loading bay no matter how I was dressed. And that's like a, it's impolite, but imagine if it was aggressive. 
Like imagine if they assumed, not that you like didn't find your way, but that you were badly intentioned and that you were even likely to harm them. So that's the, that's the appreciation that I, uh, that's the awakening that I have had. It's like micro intraday. And from a race problem, you haven't fixed that, I don't think, but you have been at the sort of uh, ghostbusters of culture. You know, you went into, you went into Uber uh, when their culture was under the spotlight. And so there was no race component to that. That was all. No, not at Uber, although I've worked with other organizations. So, so if you have a gap, if you have a gender gap, if you have a race gap, like if there are gaps in achievement and in sentiment, every organization we've worked with that wants to close the gap has and has closed it quickly. So it's all fixable, all fixable, all fixable. Step one is acknowledging. And that's why I'm so data driven about this. Like show me the data. And then, you know, when you get to relax, when you no longer have a gap, when the average performance went up and I know the quickest way to have the average performance go up. Make sure that women are thriving as much as men, black people are thriving as much as non-black people, vets as much as non-vets, abled as much as disabled or alternately abled, et cetera. And so what are the what are some of the how do you how do you spot the gap inside organizations? What are some of your sort of data? So one is data. And then if it, it data, unless it's such a small group that small numbers that you don't have data and then just go and talk to people and ask them for the indignities list. Cause if you go and ask, go like take a random sample of white men and ask them for their dignities list, indignities list. I'll tell you where I would get them. People that were close to retirement, man, did they start like there's life moments where indignity spike, but on the steady state, nowhere near. So I think I would do look at the data for, uh, but if it, the sm- numbers are too small, talk to people. What are your indignities is a great opener. That I, I just think that's something that you could do. Right now. Yeah. But, but do, you do, it, do you do it as a top-down thing or do you do it at a team level? Here's what I know about how change works. It's neither, there's not a right point of hierarchy. I mean, you have to honor the past. So you have to really like see the past. You have to provide a clear and compelling change mandate. So, okay, I see the past. Why now? Why do we have to do this now? Why can't we do it in a year? (laughs) So honor the past, have a clear and compelling change mandate, and then a super rigorous and super optimistic way forward. So it can't be rigorous, but I'm going to win and you're going to lose. That's not optimistic. It has to be, how are we going to make this better for everyone? So those are the three things that are needed. I have seen it work from the top. I have seen it work from the middle. Like if you look at sustainability as an example, very few organizations began that change movement from the top down. It was like 20 year olds (laughs) that have like compelled organizations around the world to care about sustainability. Just asking the question. Yeah. And not, and not going away. And having the honoring the pet, having a clear and compelling change and they work, they have worked to have much more rigorous and much more optimistic ways forward. And, we can measure progress against that. Very good. Is there any, are there any, f- finally on, on, the, on the book about uh, Unleashed, is there anything else, one last thing that you think that we... Yeah. You know, once you realize that it's not about you, we make a, an argument that the first thing you need to do is build trust with other people. Like the foundation for all progress is based on trust. It's not the foundation of all interactions. 
you and I could interact for a long time without trusting each other. But if you and I are going to make progress together, we have to first develop trust. And so we talk very explicitly, if I'm going to earn your trust, here's how to do it. And you trusting me is my obligation. My trusting you is your obligation. And we talk very specifically about how to build and rebuild trust. And the big breakthrough we had is that trust is a monolithic concept. It was really hard to make progress on. But when we realize that trust has three component parts, so you simply need to isolate which of the three is getting in the way. And then we offer you prescriptions for how to overcome each of the three. And so it's not a cliffhanger. It's, is it, you know, do you experience the real me with rigorous logic and that I'm in it for you? Do you experience me as authentic with logic and empathy? Every trust breakdown we have found, and we look at countries, companies, individuals, we can trace all of them to these three. So we call it a trust triangle. If there were four, we'd call it a trust quadrangle. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was three, so triangle it is. And, and the, you know, we got some comfort in that it also goes very closely to Aristotle's logos, pathos, and ethos. And so that gave us a sense that there was comprehensiveness, potential comprehensiveness in having the three. And timeliness to it as well. Yeah. You don't, it's not often you get to go back and say, here's the thing we're doing now that Aristotle was using. Oh, there's so many things that we can learn from back in time. So many. <laughs> totally, totally. Oh, that's so that's brilliant. So there's so that trust component is where is where we start. That's where you start. So I, I would just say for everyone, if like imagine the world where you could build more trust tomorrow than you can today. Not only do I want you to learn how to do it, but then I want you to learn, I want you to teach your team how to do it. And I mean trust with people on our team, our boards our vendors, our partners, our families. Like imagine the world where you had control over influencing how much trust you could earn tomorrow. That's the possibility we want you to dwell in. And you, it's totally achievable within 24 hours. Well, and I will also think that um, just sitting down and saying to somebody, what are your, what is, what's your indignities list? You know, like, and just the process of doing that, you know, let me hear what what's happening. What do we do to you all the time? Now, of course, if you don't, if you don't, if you do that badly or you don't fix it, right, you've just slapped them. But you know that that that's a it's a good start. I think it's actually overrated the the concern. Like people sharing their concerns doesn't mean that you have to address them. Nobody thinks that everybody has an endless budget and infinite time. Like if you surface them, let's say you surface 50 indignities and you got to address 10 of them, you have just skyrocketed the quality of life. So I think we sometimes don't ask because we're afraid we can't act on it. Ask. It'll be fine. It's much better to know than to not know. Well, and I was going to say, if anybody knows it's you having gone into, you know, Uber and WeWork and other organizations. So you've got huge amounts of personal experience in asking and, and not delivering and still it being a positive outcome. Francis, if you think about what you know now and you think back to when that might have been useful, what is the, is this, you know, I know now something I wish I'd known then. Is there, is there something that springs to mind? So I um, I was a math major and then an operations, I got my PhD in operations and information management. And I'm in the technology and operations management unit at HBS. And so 
for a very long time, I thought if it weren't for the pesky humans, we could really optimize everything. <laughs> so, so I wish I had learned that earlier. <laughs> that <laughs> That's where all the joy is. It's, it's where we know well how to solve optimization problems and we're like super, we bring our enthusiastic self, we get better and better at it. But when we somehow, when we have people and it's like issues of race or other things, we just like lose our analytical rigor and we get all squirrely. And so I want us to just bring that same can-do spirit that we bring to everything else also to the human condition, where I would argue it's probably even more important. Very good. And along the way, I mean, you've written a number of books. So Uncommon, Uncommon? Uncommon Service. Uncommon Service and Unleashed. Yeah. I think we know what the third one's going to... Well, we know that it's going to begin with a U and an N. <laughs> <laughs> I'm open the rest, to suggestions. <laughs> very good. What uh, what books have you found joy, inspiration from along the way? Yeah. So probably the biggest one is a book called The Fearless Organization, written by Amy Edmondson. I reread that so many times. I'll go back to the five pages, to the one paragraph, to the single sentence. It's just that one I think speaks to me a lot. A book written by Youngmi Moon called Different. It's rare in a business book in that you can read it in one sitting and you will think differently after you read it. So it's like completely truth in advertising. And then I guess the, th the third of four is a book called Rebel Talent by Francesca Gino. And it is, it's essentially how to be a rebel for good. <laughs> uh, and it, I think these all have a common theme. In them. <laughs> and then I would say that a book that I'm just reading drafts of now, so that the readers, I think you could pre-order it, but it's not yet out, but it is, it's called The Remote Work Revolution by Sadal Neely. And man, is it the right book to read for this moment in time. Uh, and it's I, the subtitle is something like how to thrive or how to succeed from anywhere. But it's essentially now that this remote work is not a temporary thing. Like we have learned some great things. What's the roadmap? Sadal Neely gives us the closest thing we have to a roadmap. Fantastic. I, I think it's a, it seems to me it's a bit like when people started doing Dress Down Friday. Which, which, which then everyone went, well, isn't Monday to Thursday ridiculous then? And it's like, hang on, we've just been working at home for 16 weeks. What do you mean I have to come back to the office all the time? It's just. But we have to learn how to optimize it. Because again, the people that are thriving are the people that are like us and the people that are different than us, we have to be more explicit. And so Sadal really takes us through all of that. Ah, I look forward to trying to get a hold of it, getting a copy of that. It's interesting because when you say, look at the data, I was having a discussion with somebody this morning. And so there's some, there's some, uh, there was an article in uh, HBR saying people say they're more productive working from home. And yet there was some stuff that had come out from Microsoft at the weekend, I think, which said people are working two hours a day longer. And so, you know, it's, I just wonder whether if you ask people a perception of their productivity, I suspect that they're not very good at judging their own productivity. And so, you know, people seem to just be working two hours a day longer and and so they they think that they think they're more productive, but actually they're being less productive. Well, by the unit of a day, but ask people, are you more productive per hour? I think people will start to say, hmm. In any given hour, when I'm at home, I go on like all kinds of scavenger hunts. 
I'm going to go look for this or that or, you know, the dog. So I too am working longer hours because no single hour is as productive as when I was in the office. If you ask me which do I prefer, I prefer being at home. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, so, so it's fascinating, isn't it? So it depends on what you mean. Yeah. And that's where, that's where I think you then have to look at the data because there's a, you know, there's also some stuff that looks as though, looks as though people, lots of people are not as happy as they were before. Well, I think so. uh, I'll just give you one example of why I think that might be, which is take an hour long meeting, an hour long meeting in person versus an hour long meeting in Zoom. Like an hour long meeting in Zoom takes like a dog year out of me. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I've been talking to you for an hour. This is a lovely conversation. This isn't a meeting with 12 people. And so what we should do, all of the inefficiency in our typical meetings when like one person says yes and the next person says yes and the next person says yes. And like and we just like it was so inefficient. We it's really palpable on Zoom. So I do think we could make people more happy if we could remove the inefficiency that was somehow palatable in person. That's super not palatable remotely. Yeah. No. It's I I find it I find it fascinating. And then and then of course there are still some people I meet who say uh, we still don't believe in remote working. All of our people are going to come back to the office. I'm not going to invest in their company. <laughs> <laughs> they they might not have a diversity policy either. Um, so uh, brilliant. Francis, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter, The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.